Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Lord, be on my mind, be on my lips. At that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards, he was hungry. The tempter approached and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. He said to him in reply, It is written, One does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written that he will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their magnificence. And he said to him, All these I shall give you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this, Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan. It is written, the Lord your God shall you worship, and Him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Okay. I've got two homilies for you. One of them is theological. It's beautiful. The other one is practical, and it's helpful. Okay? Let's go with theology first. The book of Genesis we hear from in the first reading is so misunderstood by many Christians and Catholics it is inspired by God. It is true. But are we really meant to interpret it literally? It's helpful for me to know that I was taught that the oldest part of the Bible really is not verse 1, chapter 1 of Genesis. It's actually chapter 12, verse 1. The call of Abraham. And the story of God's chosen people and how God interacted to save them from sin. And it culminated in Christ Jesus. But chapters 1 through 11 through Genesis were written much later than the beginning. Oftentimes, the ex- Babylonian exile, where a more mature theological people were meeting other cultures and hearing other religions and other teachings. And they pondered upon 
with the grace of God, the great mysteries of life. Life, for example, where did we come from? Why were we created? How does death and sin exist if God is good? And so, what we hear in the first reading today teaches us some basic truth. That God created us in the world, and God is good, and God is love, and God created us in His image and likeness to be good and to love, and intended for us to live in a paradise, the Garden of Eden. But we sin, baby, taking the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's a figurative language for saying that we decided that we can tell God, hey, we know what's right and wrong. We know what's good for us. We don't need to obey you. And so we often heard it said it's a sin of rebellion. It's a sin of pride wanting to be like God. And as soon as we made that choice to disobey God, tried to go it alone, sin and suffering entered the world. And St. Paul will tell us in the second reading that as sin entered the world through one person, he's referring to Adam and Eve in this uh, passage, sin then spreads. And sin creates an environment where more sin is more likely and we all become hurt and broken by that sin so that we find ourselves all born into a world that is broken, and we need salvation and God's help to overcome it. And then at the end of the Garden of Eden, it's powerful. They recognized after they sinned that they were naked, and they clothed themselves. There are many meanings to that passage, but I think the most fundamental one is after we sin, sometimes that sin attempts to imprison us in shame. We don't want to admit to the other our mistakes. We don't want to admit to God our mistakes. And so one of the results of that sin is separation between Adam and Eve, a distance between them because they're no longer totally naked in front of each other or honest and open, a separation between God and them because that relationship is hurt. And one other important part of this passage is that it wasn't only us involved in this sin. There is the serpent representing the devil who tempted us, and we fell to that temptation. And so, the gospel, we find ourselves, Jesus goes into the desert to fight the temptations of the devil. At the very beginning of his ministry, chapter 4, in John, just after his baptism, what he's doing is he's going to fight the battle that we lost. And by his resisting the devil in the desert and his entire ministry, life, death, and resurrection, he is going to overthrow that victory that the devil won over us and rescue us from the domination and the hopelessness of sin and death by His resurrection. And in John's Gospel, 
It's powerful. After Jesus rises from the dead, he's going to breathe upon the disciples. The image is that we've heard in Genesis. Just as God created us by breathing his breath into us, Jesus, God, is recreating us after the fall by his breath. And just as Adam and Eve were not able to eat from the tree of life, Jesus' cross becomes the tree of life. And we receive its benefits, the fruit of the tree of life in the Eucharist. That's a lot of the theology. All right, did you like any of that? The theology motivates us to want to then use this theology in a practical way. The gospel is giving us very practical ways to fight sin and temptation. The first practical thing that I think it shares that can be overlooked is that we all do experience temptation, do we not? Anyone else? Anyone out there that does not, don't raise your hand, but does not really experience temptation? But one of the things this passage tells us is that there is a devil. Now, temptations can come from ourselves, and they, a lot of them really do. Right? It's called concupiscence. It's our tendency to sin because of the fallen human nature we find ourselves in without fight. And so sometimes those thoughts and those desires come from our disordered affections. And we have to fight them. But also, it is true that sometimes those temptations come from another source. The same source from which that fall. Now, I'm a scientist, and i got to admit, for many years I struggled with the existence of that kind of evil, the devil. And I remember one time talking to my spiritual director as I was sharing the struggles of trying to live a good moral life. He said, what if, what if there really was a devil trying to trip you up? Make it harder for you to live a good life. Making you want to be lazy in certain things. And so it's not really just your laziness or your sinfulness that you need to overcome, but there's someone trying to hurt you. Now, that's a little scary of a thought, isn't it? But for me, and not everyone's the same, so I'm scared here to share that. But for me, what that does is that gets me a little bit more motivated to resist that. It helps me be a better Christian because I realize there is something trying to hurt me that does not have my best interest in heart and mind. And I must turn to someone who saves me from that. And that's a big difference than simply overcoming our fault. And so that's a big practical part of this passage, is that only Jesus has really won victory over one of the sources of temptation, the more powerful one. And so when we face temptation, we need to turn to Jesus to resist it. And so 
when temptation comes into our mind, it's a good advice to turn to prayer. Some people say a Hail Mary. I like to just have a vision of God that is really loving and helpful. For me, I think of Jesus on the cross. And so when temptation comes, turn to prayer. The, the temptation is from our natural desires. That helps tremendously. We remember what's more important. But if the temptation is from the evil one, and temptation becomes the occasion by which we are to pray, that temptation is going to go away real quick. Because that evil one does not want us to pray. Another lesson, practical lesson, is to not engage with the temptation. Adam or Eve, we see, see a whole conversation trying to talk and be logical. Jesus just cuts off every temptation right away with a one-liner. And Jesus uses Scripture. One of the powerful weapons we have against temptation is the Scripture. Because the Scripture tells us the truth about God. The devil will want to lie that God really doesn't love us. So, turn to Jesus in prayer. Cut it off quickly. Use Scripture. And finally, at the end of the third temptation, what does Jesus do? He says, get away from me, Satan. That's a rebuke. In the name of Jesus, who already won the victory, we do have the power to rebuke temptation when they are plaguing us and we can't seem to escape us. In the name of Jesus, get away from me, Satan. In the name of Jesus, go away, temptation. It's a powerful remedy. And so, theology to motivate us to use the tools, practical lessons, some of the tools that Jesus gave us. And so, in closing, we are in a battle. But the battle is already won in Christ Jesus. And he shares with us the fruit of the tree of life, which is his sacrament, his body and blood. And just as he breathed his Holy Spirit upon the early church, that church passed down that spirit through the sacrament. We have two protections. We have the sacrament and we have scripture. And the more we immerse ourselves in them and receive them regularly, the more protected we will be from evil. The closer we draw to Christ, the further the devil will flee, and the greater our life will be. And also, reconciliation. One of the greatest temptations, again, is after we sin, we think and feel badly about ourselves and not share it with others. We must go to those we sin against and apologize and reconcile. And we must come to Christ. The sacrament of reconciliation is the formal way that we reunite ourselves with the body of Christ. God founded the church and gave it power over sin and evil in His name. Let us remain close to Christ by remaining close to Him in the sacrament.